If you have been tracking with us through Isaiah, then you know we're coming into a new section of this glorious book. We started out in chapter 1 just with an introduction to the introduction, and then we moved into chapter 2 through 6 with an introduction that ended up um, pushing us forward in Isaiah's call. And then 7 through 12, we have this wonderful little section where sons are important and the messianic prophecies of 7 and 9 and 11, all those chapters were there. Ending in chapter 12 last week with this glorious song of praise. And now we enter into this next section in chapter 11, which the, the first part of this next section, chapter, or chapter 13, not 11, this first part of chapter, this next section starts in chapter 13 and goes through chapter 23. We have 10 oracles covering 11 nations and their judgment. Interspersed are promises of a remnant from God's people and as well as many of the nations that are under judgment. And then in chapter 24, we'll move into judgment of the entire earth and then we move into some other sections leading us up to the, to the climax in, in chapter 39 of this first section of Isaiah. And if you did your green sheets this week, I'm tempted to ask, but I'm not going to do it. You know that on the first couple of days, I had you read chapters 13 through 23 and just answer some questions about it, what you observed in the text. And so in those chapters, we're going to find 10 oracles against 11 nations, some of them repeated some with local um, import, some with, with eternal and eschatological import, all revealing the character of God, and they have the same themes that we've been seeing. Do not be arrogant and trust God. Do not be arrogant. It's been a primary theme for God's people being judged and, and, and brought into condemnation for their arrogance and their pride, and do not trust in anyone but God. Don't put your trust anywhere else. Driven by the king, King Ahaz, who put his trust in Assyria and their king, and all of our section going up to chapter 39, those last several chapters, 37, 38, 39, will bring us another king, and that king will partially do right and partially fall apart. Again, showing us there's no one worth trusting other than God. And so if you were answering those questions this week, you might have been thinking, how in the world are we going to deal with all of these chapters of judgment with these major themes in it. I don't know. But I know this. All Scripture is God-breathed. All of it. And it's given to us for very important purposes so that we might be complete. That we might stand before God understanding His revelation to us. And so I've read some preachers who take these, these 11 chapters and they're in one 35-minute sermon. Some of you may wish I would do that, but I'm not capable. I can't take 11 chapters and bring it to you in maybe, maybe a 35-hour sermon. I could do that. But, so we're going to go through this in chunks that we can handle on a Sunday morning, seeing what God has to say to us, what he has to say to his people. Because in Isaiah, Isaiah is preaching to whom? He's preaching to God's people. And so that's where we stand in the legacy of the Old Testament saints brought forth in Christ. We are the New Testament saints brought forth in Christ. So as we begin in this section, I remind you of these major themes because they're going to hit us in the face today. They're going to hit us in the face, especially why trust 
in any other being than Yahweh because he rules the universe. And if he rules the universe, we're fools if we go anywhere else. And yet the scriptures are replete with people trying to go other places instead of to God for what he desires and trusting in other things. And I dare say our lives are complete with the same thing, aren't they? There are times that we are living in our lives, trusting in ourselves, our wisdom, our knowledge, our money, and maybe trusting in nothing clear at all, but we're not trusting in God. We're not praying. We're not seeking his will. We're not immersed in his word. We are not asking him for wisdom. Who gives wisdom liberally, as we just read in James? So our goal in this is to understand the purpose. Now, first of all, I want you to know, these oracles to the nation, Isaiah is not going to the nations and preaching them. He's preaching them to God's people. He's preaching these oracles to God's people. There's no indication that they were preached to the nations. Now, that doesn't mean they weren't. That doesn't mean that the word didn't get around. Hey, Israel's God, his prophet, has said that he'll bring down you, king of Cush, king of Tyre, king of Egypt, king of Babylon. There's no indication that they didn't receive this. But Isaiah is preaching to the southern kingdom, to Judah and Jerusalem. So we hear these oracles in that line. Now, maybe your versions say burden instead of oracle. So the word can be translated burden or oracle. I think here oracle is the right way. It's a, it's a passionate plea. It's given by God to Isaiah to speak on behalf of God. So if you're not already in, in chapter 13 of Isaiah, turn there. I'm not going to read the whole section. We're going to cover chapter 13 today, chapter 14 next week, and 13 and 14 all encompass the oracle to Babylon. And I want you, as you're reading, to mark out where the scriptures actually say oracle and not your headings in your Bible. So if you have the ESV and you turn over to chapter 14 at verse 24, it says an oracle concerning Assyria in chapter 14, 24. That's the heading. That's not scripture. That's the heading that the editors put in. And yet the word oracle doesn't occur in that little section of scripture. It is spoken about Assyria, but it's under the oracle against Babylon. So it's our job to find out what does that mean? Why isn't it an oracle against Assyria? Why is it still under the oracle against Babylon? It also is incumbent before us, who is the superpower in Isaiah's day? Assyria is. Assyria is the superpower. Now, Babylon is not, it's not this oracle in Babylon. Look at chapter 13, verse 1. The oracle concerning Babylon, which Isaiah the son of Amos saw. So Babylon is not an insignificant power, but it's at this time, but it's, it's nothing like Assyria. It doesn't have the land, it doesn't have the army, it doesn't have the power. So why, in an oracle to the nations about God's rule and reign and advancement of his kingdom in spite of the rule of the nations, does he start with two full chapters, almost completely two full chapters against Babylon, and then he'll return to Babylon in chapter 21 for another judgment against Babylon. Why is that? Look what else you see in, and we'll answer that, look what else you see in the first verse. The oracle concerning Babylon, which Isaiah the son of Amos saw. Now that reminds us of the very beginning of Isaiah, doesn't it? That's the way the book starts out. The book starts out in chapter 1. The vision of Isaiah the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. So this is reminding us that this is still Isaiah. He's prophesying about the future. 
Now, you may pick up a commentary or read something online where the author says, well, this can't be Isaiah writing this and saying it because he's, he's saying something about the future and he wouldn't know the future. And so they say, well, this is written many centuries later. And this will be an argument at several um, spots in the book from some commentators. And let me just tell you that when the scripture says Isaiah saw it, guess what I think happened? Isaiah saw it. And Isaiah wrote it down. And I'm not trying to be snide. I'm not trying to be snippy at people who would disagree. What I'm trying to say is when it says Isaiah saw it, I don't need to find out reasons for anything except, wow, he's seeing the future. And we go, no kidding. He's speaking for God. God knows the future. So Isaiah, when he speaks about Babylon, is speaking about the kingdom that will bring down the southern kingdom. Right? It's Babylon in 586 that brings down Judah. Isaiah is ministering in the time around when the northern kingdom is taken into captivity by Assyria in 7, 722. Thank you. I heard two right answers. Usually when I do that, I get crickets chirping, either because you know and you're afraid or you don't know, but I'm thankful that this is catching on. Those are important dates. As we read the Old Testament, 722, 586, they're important dates. So Isaiah is preaching at the time when Assyria is about to take the northern kingdom into captivity, but in chapter 13, he's telling the southern kingdom who's going to come after them well over 100 years later. So it's a prophecy from God. Now, I'm not going to read the whole chapter altogether. We'll take it in chunks. But today, we're listening for what God is saying about Babylon. We're looking for clues in the text of when he is speaking about more than just Babylon Isaiah speaking in the 700s, about a time in the 500 B.C., 586 B.C. that will happen. When does this expand into more than just that Babylonian kingdom? So I have an outline that's going to encompass both, both chapters 13 and 14. And in these, from chapter 13, 1 to 14, 27, <clears throat> won't take us quite to the end of chapter 14 next week, we are shown eight scenes in the oracle Isaiah saw against Babylon. Eight scenes in the oracle Isaiah saw against Babylon. The first scene, Babylon will be judged. Verses 1 through 5 or 1 through 8, take your pick. I'm not sure yet. Is that okay for me to not be sure about something? I'm not sure. I think it's 1 through 8, speaking specifically of Babylon, and Babylon's day of the Lord after they have overtaken the southern kingdom and they meet their match in Yahweh. But it may switch focus to a larger group beginning in verse 5. Look at verse 1. The oracle concerning Babylon which Isaiah the son of Amos saw. On a, on a bare hill, raise a signal. Cry aloud to them. Wave the hand for them to enter the gates of the nobles. I myself have commanded my consecrated ones and have summoned my mighty men to execute my anger, my proudly exulting ones. The sound of a tumult is on the mountains as of a great multitude. The sound of an uproar of kingdoms, of nations gathering together. Yahweh of hosts is mustering a host for battle. They come from a distant land, from the end of the heavens, Yahweh and the weapons of his indignation to destroy the whole land. I'm going to stop there. We'll pick up in verse 6 in a minute. But notice what Isaiah begins with. 
he talks about raising a signal, and he uses the word of Yahweh's hand doing this drawing. That's going to bookend us with the end of chapter 14. Uh, the same things of his hand and the mountain and the things he's going to do will come again at the, in 25, 26, and 27 of chapter 14 to give us a bookend on this whole section, which is part of the reason I realized that Assyria and what he's going to say, which we'll cover next week, actually does belong to the oracle to Babylon. And he's saying that God will cause people, and he uses these pictures of, of standing on a mountain and waving the hand and, and, and raising up a, a shout to bring the nations and to, and to call them. And he takes credit in verse 3, doesn't he? I myself, you'll call, but I myself have commanded, and isn't this an interesting word, a phrase, my consecrated ones, and have summoned my mighty men to execute my anger, my proudly exalting ones. Now, who's he speaking about here? I think we're talking about, we're talking about Babylon in the day that God will vanquish them after Babylon has overtaken Judah, the southern kingdom. And God is saying, I will do this. And, he call, and, and we, we know, if you've read through your text, look over at verse 17. I'm not trying to confuse you. I'm trying to draw you to where I think the text is leading us. Behold, I am stirring up the Medes against them. And we know, biblically and historically, that the Medo-Persian Empire is the next empire after Babylon. The Medes are actually involved in, in, um, with Babylon in defeating Assyria. And then the, the Persians overtake the Medes, and the Medes and Persians together then come in. And we'll see this in chapter 45 when we meet King Cyrus. And when, in the Medes and Persians together, they come against Babylonian. And, and so Babylonia technically falls as the superpower then, but then they still have an existence, and Alexander the Great comes against them again, and by the end of the Roman Empire, there is no more Babylon. And our text today will tell us that that will happen. So that's a historical overview that as we read the text, you'll be able to see, oh, that happened, and that happened, and that happened. And so this is God commanding the Medes to come against the Babylonians well in the future from the day that he is preaching. And what does he say? He calls them their consecrated ones, his consecrated ones. It doesn't mean they're holy. It doesn't mean they're righteous. It means they're called out by him to do what he wants them to do. I have set them aside for my task, and we're going to learn what that task is throughout this whole section. I have summoned, verse 3, my mighty men. So these are mighty men, the Medes. The Medes and the Persians together overtake the most powerful nation in the world at the time, and they become the superpower. And so God is saying these are his mighty men. They're mighty men of their own might, but God will use them to do as he sees fit. They are my mighty men, Yahweh says. And what are they going to do? Execute my anger, and then he calls them again, my proudly exulting ones. Your version may have something different there. It's a little bit difficult to translate, but he's saying these are self-exalting, proud people, and I'm going to use them in their pride to do what they want to do out of their sin, but they're doing it because I've directed them to do it, I've commanded them to do it, and they will do it because I have the power to make them do it. Now, he's not saying, Isaiah's not saying that the Medes fully understood they were doing Yahweh's business, and they gladly went about trashing another country and said, thank you, Yahweh, for this opportunity. They're not doing that. But as we've seen throughout Isaiah, and we will continue to see out Isaiah, throughout Isaiah, and we can see from Genesis all the way to Revelation, God uses the acts of sinful men to carry out his purpose. 
He does it all the time, and he's doing it here. So verse 3 and 4 and 5, he's talking about the Medes. Look at verse 4. The sound of a tumult is on the mountains as of a great multitude. The sound of an uproar of kingdoms, of nations gathering together. The Lord of hosts, plural, is mustering a host single for battle. Yahweh is the Lord of all armies. The armies in the heavens, the armies on the earth. But he's mustering single armies, and he talks about the nations gathering. Well, that's the way the Persian Empire grew. That's the way all empires grow. They advance across the country, and they defeat this nation. They become part of, part of the big nation. They defeat this one, and they defeat this one, and all of a sudden they are a new empire. So these are the nations that the Medo-Persians are gathering, and they will come against uh, Judah or against Babylon after Babylon has come against Judah. And it is the Lord of all the host mustering a single host for battle. They come from a distant land from the ends of the heavens. That's just a way of saying they come from all over. Yahweh and the weapons of his indignation, that is the Medes and all their armies, to destroy the whole land. Now that word could be land or earth there. I think land is probably the right translation here because of the context. These are, this is, some people would say starting in verse 1, just to be transparent about the different views, and if you haven't guessed by now, if you haven't read anything outside of what you've heard here, there's some disagreement over Isaiah and how to interpret it. Did you find that? Like every verse of every chapter all the way through, there's disagreement. But there are some people who would say the beginning in verse 1, this is about the last and final day of the Lord. That day when Jesus returns on the white horse and does his, bid, and does his bidding to judge all the evil and to bring his people with him into the new heavens and new earth. There are some people that say that starts in verse 1. I don't think that's the way it is because this is talking about the Lord mustering all these armies together to do his bidding. And when the Lord comes on that day, we find out in Revelation 19, it is the Lord who slays with the with the sword of his mouth. It is the Lord who is on the white horse and his people follow him, but it is the Lord who is doing the destruction. It is the Lord who is doing the judgment. This is a picture of a local day of the Lord, which we'll talk about in just a moment. So they're coming from all over and God will use them to destroy the entire land of the Babylonians. So we're seeing Babylon will be judged. But in verse six, there's a new phrase. Look at your text, verse six. Wail, for the day of the Lord is near. Now that is a pregnant phrase, isn't it? The day of the Lord. We find that all the way through the prophets. We find this, this nod to the day of the Lord. Anytime God acts in judgment against an individual, against a people, against a nation, it's often termed the day of the Lord. And the day of the Lord is also New Testament language. And there, there's dispute about when the day of the Lord happens. Did the, did the day of the Lord happen when Jesus came and died and was, was crucified and rose again? Yes, that was a day of the Lord. But there will also be a final day of the Lord. And throughout Scripture, most, not all, but most descriptions of the day of the Lord, if you have an ESV study Bible, you can find in the Minor Prophets a graph of how every one of the prophets begin to use this phrase, the day of the Lord. It's very helpful. All of them are giving a nod toward the final day of the Lord, which will be the final day, the worst day, the final and total judgment where all sin and evil will be vanquished. So every time we have a day in the, of, of, of the Lord and we see a local fulfillment, 
which there in a sense is a local fulfillment here when this happens, when the Medo-Persians come against Babylon. It's a day of the Lord when, when the northern kingdom is taken into captivity. It's a day of the Lord when the southern kingdom is taken into captivity. The minor prophets use this, all the prophets, but especially in the minor prophets, we see this all the time. So our task is to say, is this only talking about a local manifestation of the day of the Lord? Is this only talking about the final day of the Lord? Or is this the long view of prophecy where there is a local day of the Lord and that always is the harbinger of the final day of the Lord? And I think what we have in 6 and 7 and 8, chapter 13, 6, 7, and 8, is still talking about Babylon in a physical sense with a nod toward the, the final day of the Lord. I could be wrong. When the day of the Lord is mentioned in chapter 13, verse 6, it may be taking our vision wider because I clearly think that starts happening in verse 9. So let's take a look here and see, and you can decide for yourself. Wail, for the day of the Lord is near. He's still speaking to God's people about Babylon, or he might be speaking about any nation that acts like Babylon, which we'll explain in a moment. As destruction from the Almighty, it will come. And there's a great play on words here that all the commentators bring out that we don't see in English. Uh, most of us don't know Hebrew, and I don't know Hebrew, but I can read people who do know Hebrew or are much better with it than me, like Luke. He's better at Hebrew than me. He doesn't know that, but he is. Um, destruction and Almighty sound very much the same. Shad Shaddai. So there's a play on words that, that we're seeing. Wail for the day of the Lord is near as destruction from the Almighty it will come. And in case there is any temptation for us to think that destruction comes from the Medes, no, it's from the Almighty. Shad Shaddai, it's his destruction. It may even be, in some people's minds, the exact same root that gives us those words. Verse 7, therefore, since his destruction is on his way, it will come, he, the, the day of the Lord is near, Therefore, all hands will be feeble and every human heart will melt. You can just see the picture, right? The hands that were able before are now fearful. They're shaking. They have none of their own strength. They don't know what to do. They're curled up in a ball. Every human heart will melt. Our strength, our passions, they melt before the, the day of the Lord because his power, his glory is it's so much not, we are not a match for that. Verse 8, they will be dismayed. Pangs and agony will seize them. Now, this is an idea of the, not necessarily the pain, although it's there, but it's the suddenness. It's the suddenness of when a woman is in, has been pregnant and all of a sudden her labor pains start. It is sudden. It comes on. It comes on very quickly. It's the same kind of phrases we have in 1 Thessalonians 5. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. It's that kind of imagery. Yes, it'll be painful, but it is sudden. It will take them by surprise, even though there's been a warning, right? This warning is given before the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is near. The, day of the destruction of the Almighty will come, but those who ignore it will be overtaken by it suddenly. Look at the end of verse 8. They will look aghast at one another. Their faces will be aflame. So they're going to just sit and they're going to go, <sighs> Can you, can you believe this? 
Why do we deserve this? What, what's going on? What do we do to deserve this? Where were the security guards in this? What, what? They're just aghast. But they're also, their faces are red. They're aflamed. And I don't know if that is because they're angry. I think it's more like they're embarrassed. They're embarrassed. When you read what's going to happen on the day of the Lord, they're embarrassed that all of this is happening around them. Either way, they're beside themselves. They have no strength. They have nothing to do. They're just backed up in a corner to watch the day of the Lord, and there's nothing they can do about it. Well, Babylon will be judged, but also all Babylons will be judged. In verse 9, you see that phrase again, don't you? Behold, the day of the Lord comes. It's not near, it comes. So it's saying the same thing. It's just around the corner. So is this the same day of the Lord? Is this a different day of the Lord? Is it the same day of the Lord that was mentioned in chapter, just a few verses early, earlier in verse 6? Or are we looking at something different? I would say we're looking at something a little bit different. It is widened now. Remember, this is an oracle against Babylon. An oracle against Babylon starts out when Isaiah is speaking about Babylon. It may have changed to this wider view in verse 6, but I think it definitely changes here in verse 9. And we'll point that out the reasons why. Look at verse 9. All the way from 9 to 16, we have this widening view that God, the sovereign of the universe, will judge all nations who rise up in arrogance, trusting in anything other than God and not doing the will of the Lord. Behold, verse 9, the day of Yahweh comes, cruel, with wrath and fierce anger, to make a land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. Now, that destruction is complete in this picture that's coming. We'll see several markers that this is complete destruction. That's why I think we are looking at the final day of the Lord, and every time God through history overcomes a nation in their wickedness, he is doing this same thing, leading to the final day. This is a picture of all of God's actions against all of the nations who rise up against him. And we have seen this throughout history. There is no superpower that keeps its superpower status including the United States of America. None. Go back through history and think of all of the, of the superpowers, and we can go back through the, the, the uh, Assyrians and the Babylonians and the Medes and Persians and the Egyptians and the Romans, and, and all of those fall apart. We can come in through more modern history with dynasties like the Habsburg dynasty or, or dynasties like was in, in the czars of Russia or in Germany or, or any of these places, and they all meet their match. The, the, the British Empire, as large as it was, left it, met its match. God brought a division among it, even if it's not totally divided. We have the United States of America, and we are weaker today than we were just a few months ago. And that's not just because we have a weak government or weak representatives. It's because God is in control of those men, and he does what he wills. So he uses just our contemporary setting. He uses men and women who are weak and are enemies of his, who are doing what they want to do out of their sinfulness, and he uses them for his glory to accomplish his will. And so if we're looking around at the world and think our solution is just to get somebody else in the White House, we're not trusting in the sovereign. Do we need to get somebody else in the White House? Probably. 
Do we need to get somebody else running government? Do we need to get somebody else as maybe your local, your local magistrate, your city councils? Maybe so. But that's not the ultimate answer. The ultimate answer is God placed somebody in there who loves you because he's given government to be run as he sees fit. The government is supposed to be his deacon, right? Romans 13, his servant. And when the government is not his servant, he has every right to remove them, even though he's long-suffering. That's why governments have their way sometimes against God's will, because he's long-suffering so that everyone would repent. This is his intention, to make sure that evil is punished and those who do good are protected and can live quiet lives. When they don't do that, God removes them, and it's been that way all the way through history. So this section, um, beginning in verse 9 of chapter 13 through 16, is telling us that story that I just told you. It's telling us from Old Testament language and Old Testament understanding of battle and winning battles. The end of verse 9 says, and to destroy its sinners from it. So this is a destruction of sin and the, the sinners who are doing this sin. They are the ones who make up the nation. Do you already see that we're, we cannot be confused that this is only about the nations? It is about the people who make up the nations. It is the individuals. Individuals come to faith and individuals are judged. When God judges a nation, he is judging individuals for what, what they've accomplished in the nation. Verse 10, for the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark as it's rising and the moon will not shed its light. Now this verse right here will cause many people and maybe you as well to say, well, that's got to be talking about the second coming because of the language. Well, if you go through and search those phrases, you'll find out that language is used sometimes of the first coming. It's used of the first coming of Christ as well. You can, you can look at places like Joel chapter 2. Right around that passage where that Peter quotes about the spirit of God coming upon them and your young men and your old men doing prophecies and dreams and all of that, the very next verse has language like this. The next verse says, when that happens, which happened at Pentecost, then there will be men from all tribes and tongues. It doesn't say tribes and tongues, but anyone who repents of their sins will believe. And that language is used as the first coming of Christ. There are local fulfillments using this language as well. So every time you see this language, it doesn't necessarily mean it has to be the final last days, the final day of the Lord. And I don't think that's here. I think it's all of the days of the Lord leading to, because every day of the Lord is a harbinger of the last day, the final day of the Lord. It's using language that reminds us of that. This is the same language that Jesus uses in all of that discourse in Matthew 24, verse 29, and parallels. And there, I think he's talking about the final judgment. The last, last day of the Lord. So you have to do the work. We have to do the work contextually and how these phrases are used throughout Scripture to figure out what they're talking about. This, a description of all Babylons. None of them has sovereignty over Yahweh. All of them will meet their match and it will continue until Christ returns on the last and final day of the Lord. Verse 11. I will punish the world for its evil. You notice the change here. The world. I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will put an end to the pomp of the arrogant and lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless. So there is that pride again. And those who are not just, those who do not pursue the justice of the Lord, they are the ruthless ones. And he is dealing with wickedness and sin and he will punish the entire world. Now this finds its full fulfillment when Christ returns. 
That's, that's that scene that's given to us in Revelation 19 of Christ returning on that white horse to slay with the sword of his mouth and all the birds of the world being brought to the feast of the bodies that will remain. Verse 12, I will make people more rare than fine gold and mankind than the gold of Ophir. So here's that parallelism again, saying the same thing. There aren't going to be many people left. But isn't that a little bit of a hint? There are some people left, aren't there? Because there are promises of a remnant all through Isaiah. And the remnant we will see in verses 13 through 23 especially, there will be a remnant taken from these other nations that are being judged as well. The gold of Ophir. It's a, Ophir is a place in southern Arabia that was known for its quality gold. So it's not only just rarer than gold, it's rarer than the finest possible gold that you could have. Verse 13, therefore... Based on what he just said, therefore, I will make the heavens tremble and the earth will be shaken out of its place at the wrath of Yahweh of hosts in the day of his fierce anger. And like a hunted gazelle or like sheep with none to gather them, each will turn to his own people and each will flee to his own land. Whoever is found will be thrust through and whoever is caught will fall by the sword. Their infants will be dashed in pieces before their eyes. Their houses will be plundered, their wives ravished. And that is a violent word for their wives being ravished. So even if you make it back to the land, the land where there will be no shepherds to shepherd the sheep and no sheep to, sh to shepherd, if you make it back there, you're going to be run through. The swords of the enemies will run through God's enemies, and he will constantly have that. This is a violent picture because sin is violent and God is holy. And his wrath, is, we've already heard that it's cruel, his wrath seems to be, there's no other words to explain it except it's cruel with wrath and fierce anger because this is the Lord's holiness set up against sin. And these words in here that make us so uncomfortable, the infants will be dashed in pieces before their eyes. This is the, the total blood thirst of the enemy that God raises up against his enemies. Turn, if you will, to the Psalms, to 137. One thirty-seven is a psalm of God's people in exile and their mourning. This is the southern kingdom in exile in Babylon. Psalm one thirty-seven: By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. So they're in exile and they remember their home. But don't ever forget that when an exiled um, Jew is thinking of their home. They're not just thinking of the town. They're thinking of the temple and they're thinking of their God. And that's where their God dwells. And we wept by the waters of Babylon when we remembered Zion. On the willows there, we hung up our lyres. For there, our captors required of us songs and our tormentors mirth saying, sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, you see the shift? The we's to the you's, to the eyes, I mean, the we's to the eyes. Verse 1 through 4 is a corporate confession. Verse 5 begins, I, If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. Let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you, if I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joys. Remember, 
O Yahweh, O Lord, against the Edomites the day of Jerusalem. How they said, lay it bare, lay it bare, down to its foundations. And the Edomites are recorded in Scripture of taunting the southern kingdom when the Babylonians overtook it. O daughter of Babylon, doomed to be destroyed. You see the hope? Even by the waters of Babylon, when they can't sing songs about Zion, they hang their harps in the trees. They're thinking about words like Isaiah gives. They're remembering. O daughter of Babylon, doomed to be destroyed. Blessed shall he be who repays you with what you have done to us. Blessed shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rocks. They're remembering. God said this will happen to their persecutors. And in exile, they're remembering the words of Isaiah that this will happen and blessed be the one who does it. All this language makes us uncomfortable, but if we pull ourselves back into biblical language and biblical theology, we know this is how far away from righteousness and holiness sin is. That God in his perfection must act against sin. He has the option to be long-suffering. He has the option to delay that judgment. And he has done so throughout history. And the New Testament tells us he does so because he desires us to come to repentance. But this is his only way to respond to sin. And this language is giving us that Old Testament understanding of what battles looked like in the day. I would imagine if it was written today, we'd hear about tanks and nuclear bombs and all of this as well, if, if it was going to be written. It's using the language to say there is going to be total destruction. You will deserve it, and God is righteous to do it, but he will always preserve a remnant. So this is judgment and hope in starkness here. And we'll see the hope in chapter 14, the first few verses. So it's right around the corner, but we don't, we, we can just, if you've read it, you're smelling it. You're, you're looking forward to it, but we're not there yet. So not only will Babylon be judged, not only all Babylons will be judged, but Babylon will fall to the needs. The judgment brings forth the fall of the country. And that's what begins in verse 17. Behold, I am stirring up the Medes against them who have no regard for silver and do not delight in gold. In other words, you can't buy them off. You can't give them the, the contents of the treasury and make them stop because they don't care about that. All they want is blood and death and destruction. Their bows will slaughter the young men. They will have no mercy on the fruit of the womb. Their eyes will not pity children. All Babylon, the glory of kingdoms, the splendor and pomp of the Chaldeans will be like Sodom and Gomorrah when God overthrew them. Now you remember Babylon, it was, it was famous for its grandeur. The hanging gardens of Babylon. You remember one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. The walls around Babylon thick enough that you could put two chariots abreast and ride across the top of the wall. It was that thick. Impenetrable was what Babylon was thought to be. You can remember that... I thought I wrote this down, but... In Daniel, you remember uh, Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel in chapter 4, what he said. This is what brought his destruction, was saying all the glories of Babylon were for him. In Daniel 4.30, is it not the great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence for the glory of my majesty? And the next thing you know, he's a fescue-feeding animal out in the fields under judgment of God. And it was those statements taking glory for what God had accomplished through him, even this wicked king, 
that sent him away. Babylon throughout the scriptures has been representative of enemies of God. All the way at the beginning, Genesis chapter 11, the tower of Babel, right? They met at Shinar, the ancient word for Babylon. And they met at Shinar so that all the people of the world would gather together, which was against the commandment, right? They were to, they were to spread out across the world. They were to go and be fruitful and multiply throughout the whole world. But they decided they were going to come together and do what? Build a city where they all could stay, and they would build a tower that reached up to the heavens. They built a ziggurat so that they thought they could go up and access the heavens and them be like God. And God says, we came down, we came down and scattered them, scattered their tongue, and they went away. So even from ancient days, Babylon was pictured as an enemy of God. The prophets, Babylon or Shinar, appears 265 times in the scriptures, and 196 of them appear in the prophets. Many of those about the judgment of Babylon or nations that are like Babylon. 1 Peter 5.13 says, She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, send you greetings. So Peter uses that exile language in his letters, right? And he refers to somebody, they're in Babylon. They're in exile. And that's referring to us in this world. We're exiled. We're not quite home in heaven yet. We're exiles on this earth, but it's using that form. In Revelation, over and over, in, in multiple chapters in Revelation, in 17 and 18 and 16, we see Babylon pictured as all the enemies of God that God comes against. So that's what's talking about as all the Babylons will fall. And this is what's happened, what will happen to that Babylon who takes the southern kingdom and they're the beginnings of all of those days of the Lord and every enemy of God can be spoken of as Babylon. Verse 20, it will never be inhabited or lived in for all generations. No Arab will pitch his tent there. No shepherds will make their flocks lie down. So even those who roam from field to field and country to country will never go there because it doesn't exist. But wild animals will lie down there and their houses will be full of howling creatures. Their ostriches will dwell there. Wild goats will dance. Hyenas will cry in its towers and jackals in the pleasing places, in the pleasant places. It, its time is close at hand and its days will not be prolonged. This is the same kind of language in one of those Babylon passages and in Revelation chapter 18 where we read, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. So even that language of Isaiah is brought into to, to Revelation to talk about the final judgment and every judgment throughout history that's happened that's represented there in Revelation. So Babylon will be judged, all Babylonians will be judged, and Babylon will fall in time and space to the Medes, and it's destroyed forever, completely, completely destroyed, not even to be found by the end of the Roman Empire. This is hard language, isn't it? But this is God language. And you say, well, what on earth does it have to do with us? I mean, I hope I'm not Babylon. Well, I hope you're not Babylon as well. But there's some things that mark out those who are not. Remember, Isaiah is speaking to the southern kingdom, to Jerusalem and Judah and its leaders and its people. That's who he's speaking to. And so there's a message there for them. So what message does it bring to them and how should they respond? That's the message it brings to us. And one of the messages that it brings to them is you can trust this God. 
Because this God is telling you about who's going to overthrow you and what he'll do to those who have overthrown you. And it's going to happen in, in, in 150 years from now. And this God is the one who knows the end from the beginning and will accomplish the end of the, from the beginning. Now, if I'm Ahaz and I'm hearing this, if I'm the people of, of Judah, the southern kingdom, what I'm doing, if I'm listening with spiritual ears, is saying, I don't have anything to fear. Even if I have to go through trials and trouble, even if I have to do that, even if I'm one taken into captivity, I'm trusting in the Lord my God because he's the one in charge of all this. If I'm taken into captivity, it's because he deemed it necessary and he deemed it for my good. This is why the exiles went into exile and they were told to, to love the country that they were in and the people that they were in and build houses and have children and, and look out for the, the benefit, the good of the country that they're in because they were Yahweh's people. Well, I don't know about you, but I feel more like an exile today than I ever have in my life. I, I mean, I, I'm not as old as I could be, but I'm a lot older than I used to be. I've lived through enough. And this is the time I wake up every morning and I thought, and I think, what foolishness is going to happen today that yesterday was the subject of jokes and memes and today is front page news that it's actually happened. Every day can overwhelm us like that. And if we're not careful, we'll suck right into the middle of it to find our solution. Man, you got to get people out to vote as if that's the end result instead of the fruit of the initial result is trust God. So it speaks to us great today that God is sovereign and God is in control and he's in control of every nation and we can look through history and see what he has done. And if we looked at, at history as his story, history, then all the things that happen, we go, look what God did. Look how he accomplished that. Look how he took care of that evil. Look how he took care of those people who were persecuting those people. Look how he took care of those people who were in concentration camps because he put people among them who re remembered their scripture and knew their hymns. Look at the glory that God has done through people in the midst of persecution, those who love him and trust him. And that's one of the messages to us. The second is God uses evil to accomplish his will. And we know that. We can theologically say, God uses evil to accomplish his will. Well, it says so because he used evil men to accomplish his will by crucifying Jesus on the cross. True statement, right? But that can be all generic and up in our head and not touch our hearts. And we live as if God doesn't have anything to do with the evil. We live as if God doesn't have anything to do with what's going on in our world. Now, this is going to come up so many times that I'm going to be really hard-pressed not to use the same illustrations, so I'm not even going to use illustrations. Who needs to use illustrations when you preach in today's day? All you do is turn on the news on your radio, turn on the news on the Internet, turn on the news on your TV, illustration after illustration after illustration, and you remind yourself and your children and your friends, God is in control. Not only is he in control, he's not just sitting back saying, well, I'm going to let that happen and see what happens. He's in control, orchestrating his will, summing up all things in Christ. And you see that today. Watch the news with biblical eyes because now we have some in sinful camps now turning on others in sinful camps, right? And we have it in multiple places. We have feminists turning against the trans community because they're, they're taking the, what the feminists have always um, uh, fought for and they're turning it on its head as if women mean nothing anymore because for a, a trans person, they don't mean anything. We have, we have an abortion community, the people who are fighting for the right to kill children in the womb. We have within that community people who are fighting for that right, fighting amongst themselves on when it should happen and how it should happen, what, sh what they should fight for. So God is already using evil to turn against and judge other evil things in our country. 
Why would he not do more? Why does that not populate our prayers? God, use the evil in our world to accomplish your will and let us see your glory in it. Now, let me give you a caution. Nowhere am I saying that we should sit on the sidelines and cheer like we're cheering for one team over the other. When we get to heaven, we'll be able to do that perfectly. Yes? New heaven and new earth. But we're not going to say, God, I'm sure glad you took care of those evil people. We're going to say, praise you, God, for never doing anything that was unjust. Praise you for never doing anything that was unrighteous. Praise you for everything that you said you'd do, you would do. And all praise is going to go to him. And the thanksgiving is to him. We won't have any tears or crying in the new heavens and new earth, so we're not going to mourn them. But here, we still have tears. Here, we still have the gospel to preach. Amen? We still have the gospel to take to these dead and dying people. We have to get out there to them, which means we have to go rub shoulders with them in the world, but not of the world. The yuck factor has to leave us so that we can love them enough to tell them the truth. That's our mission now. So we don't sit and gloat when God does that. We give him glory for advancing his kingdom and we go right back to the front lines with the tools of the gospel because our enemies are not the people. They're the spiritual warfare that's going on. Well, here's the final encouragement I want to bring to you. God will overcome all evil. Right? He will. He may not be doing it all at once, all at this time, and aren't you glad he didn't do it before you turned to Christ? Aren't you glad that he did not overcome all evil before he regenerated your heart and you expressed faith and trust in Christ? Because he was long-suffering to lead you to salvation, and he is long-suffering until all his elect are saved. But we do know that there will be a day that there will be no more evil. The gates of the new heaven and new earth in that picture in the last couple of chapters of Revelation are closed to the unrighteous. They're only open to the ones who are in Christ. So even as we walk in the midst of this world and we're burdened by the sin and we preach the gospel and we're burdened by the people who just put the stop sign up for the gospel, I don't want any of that. I like my sinful life and we're burdened and brought to tears by that. What we have to remember is God will overcome all evil in Christ. And when we get to the new heavens and new earth, there will be nothing but righteousness and us in the presence of our Savior. And it will be very easy to say, all glory be to Christ. And we won't be overcome by any of the sin in this world. So this passage of Scripture reminds us God will overcome evil, that God uses evil to accomplish His will, and it also reminds us that He is sovereign over the nations. And even if one of these crazy countries come and start dropping bombs over here, God is sovereign over that, and we still have a mission until He takes us home or Jesus returns. Chapter 13 prepares us for that. So don't get to chapter 14 yet. Revel in what the judgment of God brings us as believers in Christ today because it allows us to go through our entire life singing all glory be to God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your, the blessedness of your word. It overwhelms us, Father, with its severity, but we know that you are a holy God. We are thankful, Lord, that you reveal this to us so that it burdens us for the lost. It brings us a, a wonderful understanding, Father, of what you intend to do. It also gives us motivation, Lord, and we pray that you would make us better evangelists, better preachers of the gospel, for it is in Christ that anyone 
escapes your judgment. So we are people, Father, that this morning come to you thanking you for the gift of salvation through your Son. We are thankful, Lord, that that salvation is still held out to all and anyone, Father, who is walking against you, who is walking as your enemy, needs to hear this gospel. So make us powerful with the preaching. Redeem those who repent and turn to you so that it brings the final day of the Lord and our eternal rest that much closer. And we are grateful for this in Jesus' name. Amen.